Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science. We're so glad you're joining us here today. What lessons have we learned about the coronavirus from previous plagues? How do social aspects of pandemics connect with the microbial world? How have diseases and plagues brought out the best and the worst in humanity over the centuries? These were a few of the topics we discussed with Professor Nicholas Christakis, who is an MD, PhD, and MPH, and is a social scientist and physician at Yale University, who conducts research in the fields of network science, biosocial science, and behavioral genetics. His current work focuses on how human biology and health affect and are affected by social interactions and social networks. He directs the Human Nature Lab and is the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science and the author of many books, including Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. This conversation was recorded on December 8, 2020, in the midst of another wave of COVID in the United States. But there was a bit of hope on the horizon. The first vaccines were about to be given to the public just a few days later. We're thrilled to be able to be talking about some of these really, really interesting questions. And and I think the first one that that I think is is important for those of us who are listening, there are definitely people here who identify as as being religious. There are certainly some some religious leaders. Many of the people here, I think, would identify as as relatively politically liberal and will tend to say that when we're thinking about how are we going to act in response to COVID-19, a, a phrase that comes up a lot is, well, we're going to follow the science. We're going to follow the science and, and they're going to keep their gatherings either totally virtual or very, very small to try to save lives and, and, and protect people here. But even if we say, I'm going to follow the science, most of us are, are lay people when it comes to scientific knowledge. And Public health recommendations change, sometimes rapidly. Some of the recommendations have been mainly due to political interests. So how do we distinguish among you know, things that are accurate information are going to be accurate for a long time, information that was accurate at the time but has since changed, information that's well-intentioned but is misinformed, and, and things that are just outright deception? How do we distinguish among all of those? Well, I mean, that is, you're opening with a difficult question of epistemology. (laughs) I I can't believe that's like the first topic is how do we know the truth? Here's one thing I can say, and and not only do, how do we know the truth, but who do we know is a truth teller? Um, On the the former question, in some ways, a bit easier from my perspective, setting aside sort of divine inspiration, I think science is the best tool that we as human beings have created that allows us to approach the objective reality of the world. You know, it's a has a, sel- a set of self-correcting rules, a set of principles, a set of norms that uh, that tend towards finding the truth. Now, it's it's not infallible. Scientists, you know, of course, can be wrong and often are wrong, but they're dedicated to the pursuit of truth. And in principle, they follow the classic rules. Like, you know, we do more experiments and we must reject an idea if it doesn't comport with the reality. You know, the the whole heuristic that reality is a cruel mistress. You know, you can have whatever fantastic, you can imagine that masks don't help prevent COVID, but the virus will set you straight, you know, if you are mistaken in your perception. A more difficult question is how do you single out who is most likely to um, be a good scientist or a good truth teller 
And I think here it can be very helpful if you if you um, are selective in who you listen to and look for certain traits. One, of course, is the ability to present the evidence for your belief, right? So if you make a claim that this or that is true or false with respect to coronavirus, you should be able to explain why you have that belief. What is your evidence for that? And you should be able to bound your uncertainty, right? You should be able to say, you know, I um, here's how certain I am about this thing. Here's why I believe this thing. Here's the evidence against it. Uh, here's the evidence for it. And you should be willing, if as you suggested, to revise your beliefs. I think that enhances our credibility, not decreases it. A scientist that gets up and says, I used to think this for these reasons, but now there's this additional evidence. So I have revised my opinion. That should increase that person's credibility, not decrease it, in fact. And so even though it is true that even in this pandemic, some scientists have admit, have misstepped about certain topics like the utility of masks, which incidentally, most scientists did not get that wrong right from the very beginning. Or the ongoing debates we have about how risky is it to keep schools open? You know, what is and is not known about, about the, not only the transmission among children, but the utility of closing schools and how it works and what do we know from previous examples? All of these ongoing debates, you know, I think that listeners who are interested in who do I trust should be looking for people who are willing to follow some of those descriptors that I mentioned a moment ago. And I think what's what's interesting and what's challenging is that there are some pieces, particularly like in the religious world, where there is a social reality that it is it is not necessarily an objective reality that um, that you know light in the the Hanukkah is going to create wonderful pieces, right? That you know, it's, a, it's a social reality. Ritual is a social social reality there versus COVID nineteen, which is a physical reality. And uh, and you know one of the one of the interesting things that that happens with pandemics is that it's not just the the science of the virus but how is it communicated through people and through interactions in the social world that we're living in it's not just i'm living in an isolated piece but how i'm acting impacts other people as well yeah i mean that you know you've almost given the perfect description of what what people call a complex system right that has biological social and physical components the physical components for example being drugs or or um, you know, uh, physical objects that also play a role in the transmission of the virus. And of course, you know, I talk a lot about that in um, in Apollo Zero. Is is how epidemics intrinsically are social phenomena. It's not just about the virus. It's about how human beings interact with each other. What 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 actions they take. The virus has its own agenda, but you know, we are not without agency either. We have our agenda, which is to survive and to outsmart the virus. And so we, you know, we affect what happens in the, uh, to the pandemic. We're not just passive recipients of it. I should say, just incidentally, and I don't mean this in a blasphemous sense, there's no God-given reason that this virus only kills about 1% of the people that it infects. Uh, it, you know, right now, 10 months into the pandemic, we know how deadly this virus is. The so-called infection fatality rate, the fraction of people who are infected with the virus who die is between 0.5 and 0.8%. If you get symptoms, about half the people don't even get symptoms. So if you get symptoms, you got to double those numbers. So about one to 1.6% of infected people die. And of course, most listeners know that that varies with age. So if you're younger than 20, you know, maybe one in 3,000 to one in 10,000 of those people will die. And then around your 50s, it becomes around one to 2%. And by your 70s and 80s, it's like 20 or 25% of the people who are infected will die. So it's actually quite a serious uh, virus. 
we should take it seriously. And as a tangent on a tangent, if you're young and listening to this, just because I, as a parent, I'm really relieved that my t- children in their 20s, if they were to get this, wouldn't die. Uh, but death is not a problem for the young at all. In other words, young people don't have a risk of material risk of dying anyway. So actually getting the virus materially increases your risk if you're in your 20s. You should be taking this seriously. But anyway, so the virus, we now know a lot about the um, the infectiousness uh, of the virus. Now, I lost my train of thought now. You had asked me about... Um, what was your question? Remind me for a second. I yeah, no, I, I, now I'm now I'm so I'm so immersed in this of of um, that the, the 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 social reality versus the medical reality that that's oh the- right. So um so the so so uh so the so the virus has this intrinsic lethality uh you know that is now we know this is how the virus kills us and I should also say that this intrinsic lethality is not we're lucky it's only one percent it the virus could have been much more deadly. It could have killed 10% or, 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 or more uh, people. You know, some of the medieval plagues were devastating. Uh, the people thought the world was ending. They were being annihilated. You know, 50% of the people in a city would die within a few months. The, the uh, smallpox epidemics that uh, killed Native Americans, 95% of the people would die, right? So we don't have that. The, what this means is that there is some role of agency. We, we have an opportunity to do something about this virus, precisely because it is not quite as deadly as it could have been. So we're lucky, in fact, that we can act. And and I think what's interesting, though, there's also a, a downside to that. I mean, look, we would rather have many fewer people die than, you know, that better to have more people alive than dead. Yes. Um, but one of the challenges uh, of, of COVID-19 and, and seeing this, particularly of people who are, um, who are, who are spreading a lot of misinformation, but one of the challenges is that when we're thinking about our our agency, I think we're na- naturally, as human beings, we're focused on what's immediate and local and personal and concrete. And COVID nineteen sometimes feels like it's abstract and distant and and other people. And and so it's there was an article I think in the New York Times just recently of saying that that maybe one of the reasons people are not taking it as seriously is because it, it feels so potentially far away and abstract because we're not seeing what does it actually look like to be to be intubated? What does it look like in, in the hospital? I think for some people here, they they have a very intimate sense of that if, if they're in the medical field or if they're if they're a clergy person who's been who's been um, working with friends and family members who have died of COVID-19. But it's really, really hard for us to, to take action on something when it feels yes. potentially very far away. And we're so isolated right now that we're yes, not even I, seeing other people. Yes, I've, that's exactly right. And I've been making that argument quite for quite a while. And that argument has at least three components. The first argument, which you mentioned, was the fact that um, we're, we don't, we're not in touch with these deaths. We don't see them. And it's quite likely that even if at least half a million Americans are going to die of this condition, maybe as many as a million before the epidemic is over. But even in that range, even if, even if a million Americans die, and this might be this half a million, all these numbers will happen regardless of the vaccine, given the pace of the epidemic in our society right now. Even if that many Americans die, there are probably only 10 people who know each of the decedents intimately, and maybe 100 people who might know of them, let's say, you know, personally. So that's still 100 million Americans. A million Americans die. That's one out of 300. 100 million Americans know someone who died. So that's, you know, 
only one third of Americans. Most Americans on the other side of this epidemic will neither have died nor even know anyone who's died. And so it's very easy, as you're suggesting, to think this is the problem of afflicts other people, first point, which is wrong, of course. Second point we already also mentioned, which is the fact that this virus only, only kills about 1% of the people is one of this fiendish qualities. If the virus had killed more people or killed them more um, consistently, uh, I'll get to that in a moment. If the virus had a higher lethality rate, we would actually be taking it more seriously, I believe. You know, if it was bubonic plague, or if it was even like the virus in the movie Contagion, which also began in bats and killed about 30%, it's its so-called infection fatality rate, IFR, for COVID is about 1%, we said, or half a percent to 0.8%. For the, for the fictitious, you know, virus in the movie Contagion, it was 30% of the people who got it died or something like that. Very bad virus. We would be taking it more seriously. But there's a third element, which is really sneaky of this virus, uh, which is it's protean manifestations. Let, let me give you just a little example for the listeners to see, see this point. Okay, imagine two different worlds. And I'm gonna ask the listeners to pick in a moment. They may not be able to express themselves to me, but I'm gonna ask them to think. Okay, here's an exercise. There are two different worlds, okay? World A, there are a thousand people. 10 of them get seriously ill from a virus and one of those people dies. So one out of 10 people die, that's a 10% lethality rate. That's world A, okay? In world B, there are a thousand people. A hundred people get sick from the virus. 90 of them get a mild illness and then they recover. 10 of them get a serious illness, just like in world A. And one of them dies, just like in world A. All right, that's world B. Now here we would compute that one out of a hundred people who got sick or 1% of the people who got infected died. Do you understand? So in the world A, 10% of the people who got sick died. In world B, 1% of the people who got sick died. In which world would you rather be? Right. You, you want, by the way, where fewer people get sick. I would, you, know, that's, you, would, you would hope that you would want to be one where, where people are healthier. Yes, you would want to be in world A, right? There's no sense in which it's superior to be in world B. In world B, one out of a thousand people dies, 10 out of a thousand gets seriously ill, and 90 out of a thousand also gets sick. But the problem is that world B is the world we're in. It's confusing because many of the people who get the virus, nothing happens to them. They either don't have symptoms or they have a common cold. And that makes the virus seem less lethal because the denominator you're using is the fraction of people who got, got infected rather than the fraction of people who died, let's say. It's this variety of manifestations, this protean uh, expression of the virus in addition to its intrinsic lethality that is causing some of the confusion and making it harder for people to take seriously. That leads to a, to a nice question. And I also want to say to people, if there are questions, you can type them in the chat and we'll, uh, and we'll, and we'll respond in a little bit here. But one of the things that I think is, is, is interesting is the question of messaging and, and how do you share these kinds of messages? And there's both the message that is being said and the message that's being heard. Um, because that's not always the same thing, right? You've got to have clear public messaging, but you've also got to have messaging that people will actually act on. And and I think one of the things that that can come up is religious leaders are are tend to be people who are trusted. They have a relationship. They 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 have a a, a megaphone in this kind of way. Um, some of the some of the people who are preaching religious liberty are being totally counterproductive and saying, we're going to get everybody in for Christmas and let's get everybody singing because we're not going to be afraid. And that's 
that's horrible. And there's also the possibility, I think uh, there are a lot of people who are tend to use the uh, framing of shame of how dare you act in this kind of way that I think can feel good morally, but it ultimately can be very counter counterproductive and ineffective because that's not a good behavior change. So what are some of the ways in which, whether you're a religious leader, if you're somebody who has some influence, what would be good messaging given all yeah. the, the, the confusion of this? So back in March, I was consult. I wrote this piece in the Washington post about, um, compassion and coronavirus or something. I don't remember the title right now. It was back in March and it was before I wrote the book. And in fact, it was writing it. That was one of the ideas that prompted me to want to write the book. But, uh, but uh, I was consulted as a result of that piece by the Archdiocese of New Hampshire. Uh, and, they, and they said to me, they came to me and they said, look, you know, we, we want to keep our churches open. We, want our, we need our, our soup kitchens. We need our Alcoholics Anonymous in our basement. We, we have a, a, a pastoral duty. We want our priests out visiting sick people. Uh, we, we are struggling with this. You know, how do we, what should we do? And I said, I understand the part of your tradition that suggests that that is the brave and the right thing to do that that is the moral thing to do. But actually there's another part of your tradition which privileges life and which uh, and, and actually that the brave and moral thing to do is to close your churches. That is being community-minded. If you really care about life or death in your community, not just about your own flock, but the larger community and society of which you are a part, I would argue you have the duty to, to move your services to Zoom. Now, if you're a priest or a rabbi or, or, or an imam and you have to go to the bedside or perform a ritual, then you know we should have provided PPE. We should have made provisions for that as well. And as I write in the book, I mean, I thought the fact that so many people were dying alone, like the Orthodox uh, um, community, the Orthodox Jewish community in, uh, in New York, that where they, where they set these, the holy prayers, they were said you know, by the phone, put at the bedside, you know, for me, this was anathema and, and actually unnecessary. I mean, I understand why if you have no PPE, if your hospital is full, you can't provide, you don't want uh, additional people to come into your hospital that bring more infections, or if they're not infected, you don't want them to come into the hospital and become infected, and you can't, you don't have the staffing or the PPE to stop that. Uh, I can understand some of those motivations, but at the same time as a hospice doctor, and I was a hospice doctor for many years, to me, the collapse of our healthcare system to the point where so many Americans were dying alone, and we had to resort to these expedients, you know, these ex uh, expedients of having sort of last rites in different traditions phoned in, you know, was just a, outrageous to me, you know, and, 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 and I think with some planning would have been avoided. So, so, he, so my point is, is that I think that there are parts of the tradition which I think can be dispensed with in the favor of other parts of the tradition in a time of plague, but there's still some parts I think which can be honored. And, and I think what's, what's challenging is that we tend to deal with an, uh, an either or, right? Our, our minds right. tend to do this and, and our society now is very much us versus them. And you talk about this in the book too, of, of how we create an us versus them piece. But a lot of what that's typical of all plagues, right? And in fact, it was one of the origins of anti-Semitism in medieval period, right? The, although not just anti-Semitism, I mean, there was the case of those hapless Spaniards, right, who were, mm -hmm. you know, who were drawn and quartered and blamed by the Italians or whatever it was. But anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. us versus them. 
uh, us versus them, and 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 us versus them in, in in all sorts of different ways. When I think what we what we need to be thinking about more are sort of trade offs and scales, and how do we make these kinds of of decisions? And yeah, I remember, and I, I live in in suburban New York. I live actually right near New Rochelle. Um, but when I was living uh, as the pandemic was happening, a, a phrase that that kept coming up was that the the infinite value of human life and and that's a phrase that comes up in a lot of religious contexts of, of every life has infinite value and the problem was that it we say life has infinite value because usually the things that we need to be able to keep someone alive they don't have to be rationed right there's not there's not only x number of beds and we got to figure out who's going to live and who's going to die but we've had to make all of these different trade-offs of different questions of people's mental health, people questions of their livelihood, and um, and 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 I think you know I'm I'm seeing in a lot of conversations now of very much of a I I'm trying to do the the the, the right thing, and and people can either be guilty about not doing enough or can be blaming other people for not doing enough. Yes, and and so how do we how do we try yeah. to think through what are some ways to think a bit more shades of gray? Well, I mean, the two, at least two aspects to what you're saying. One is the whole thinning out of our intellectual lives in this country in multiple ways. One of which is a lack of appreciation for science. You could talk about science education at every level, uh, the polarization, the political polarization, the kind of us versus them idea you mentioned, which is there's this bifurcation where we think it's us versus them for many things. And most important, I think the loss of nuance uh, in our society, where where the lack of capacity to see sh- sh- things in shades of gray, which, you know, I think is just an adult. You know, we need to be adult about the world, right? I mean, that most things are are complex and they're shades of gray, and that applies even to my, even to one's posture. I think when it comes to people who hold beliefs that are, from my point of view. Nonsense, which are in fact nonsensical, and also from my point of view, nonsensical <laughs> with respect to uh, with respect to how to manage the epidemic. And I think that listening to what people are saying, even if they tell you, you know, I think the government. Just today, for example, I heard a story of people. They were high school educated, uh, working class uh, young men who uh, read on the internet that. Uh, the vaccines should be avoided because the government was going to be injecting microchips into us. These people were not mentally ill. They were not stupid. They just had, you know, adopted this belief system, which was wrong. You know, there's, there are no microchips in the vaccines that are going to be injected into people, uh, but, but how to take them seriously, right? Like shaming them, as you said, is not going to work. Uh, demeaning them is not going to work. Uh, you have to somehow join them and, uh, and, and and not only is that the humane thing to do, but it's also the savvy thing to do from a public health point of view. Um, and this is why, incidentally, one of the missed opportunities in our country, we, we haven't talked about this yet, but, you know, we, I'm ashamed as a nation of how poorly we have done managing the, the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's preposterous. A lot of the blame, uh, I think, does rightly fall at the White House. Now, it is true that other wealthy democracies also screwed up, you know, the England and and uh, and Italy, you know, for example. But other countries did well, you know, uh, not just uh, sort of island nations like Taiwan and uh, and New Zealand, uh, which is, of course, a wealthy uh, westernized democracy in New Zealand, but it's an island. Okay, so it did. But, you know, even Greece <laughs> did well, you right. know, or or Germany, for example. Mm-hmm. And so so we could have 
So I so it is the case that we that uh, we did poorly. Plus, from my point of view, we're the United States. You know, we we should have done better uh, than we've done. So we've done we've done really badly on every axis: the testing, the PPE. But one of the most important ways we've done badly, and we continue to do badly, and I hope that with the new administration this will change, is public messaging. Mm-hmm. How do we rally the nation? which is a, we're a plural democracy with people with different, from all walks of life, with different beliefs, with different levels of understanding, different religions, different politics, different ideology, different uh, ethno-racial background, different everything. You know, that's the United States, right? How do we, how do we rally the nation and, and use the bully pulpit effectively for public health messaging? And I think one of the themes that could have been adopted, and I'm beginning to see President Biden adopting, is uh, calling people to sacrifice, right? Saying, you know, we are Americans, we're facing a threat. It's a virus that's invading us. It's not an army, but it is a threat. It's gonna be a challenge. We have to come together as a people to fight this thing. It will require sacrifices of different sorts from different people. From some, it just will require money, you know, more taxes. Others like healthcare workers will have to risk their lives in caring for us. Still others will have to wear masks, which are inconvenient or make them feel silly. You know, each, everybody is going to have to do something to work together. So I think that kind of framing, I think in my experience tends to work in the United States, but you, you'll notice that as far as I can tell, that's not in fact been adopted, certainly not on a national level. And I, I think part of the, part of the challenge, and and this is where the, you think about the Supreme Court case that came in with Cuomo, um, that that the Supreme Court recently uh, recently overturned on that, certain ground. Yeah, on certain sort of grounds. Yes. Right. Right. And and I think that there's. Uh, so I religion- have a problem. Here's the challenge. I, I'm a many. Some of you may know I'm a strong first First Amendment defender, but. Uh, so, um, so I, I think it's, it's absolutely essential that any rules be uh, even-handedly applied, right? You can't mm-hmm. single out religious institutions. So if you say that, you know, no gathering larger than 10 people is allowed, that applies to the Orthodox weddings, that applies to the Walmart, that applies to the protests, that just has to apply uniformly. We, right. cannot, we cannot pick based on the content. But here's the problem that I face in this as a public health expert. It is entirely possible that certain kinds of activities, the, the, the useful feature or the relevant feature might not just be the size of the gathering, but the actual activity. So if in fact in religious services take place indoors, involve singing, involve higher density of people's bodies, for example, or longer duration, you see they may be, there may be other pertinent features which might, might call for the state to actually single out religious institutions. And there, of course, in the United States, we would have a serious problem, right? If, because, and we know, just to be clear, that religious uh, gatherings, whether it's uh, uh, singing or churches or, uh, or weddings, have been repeatedly sites of super spreading events in the way that grocery stores, for example, have not been. So if the state were to want to restrict on a public health grounds, I would want them to do that even at the same time as I don't think we should single out religious institutions. And and I think I think that's exactly right. And I think that's what's what's been I think particularly challenging in in, in the American ethos is that America is very much grounded on the on, on a perspective of private individual rights. Yes. And and religion, at least I know Judaism to an extent, but but other other religions as well. Um, 
and can orient to being about public communal responsibility. Yes. And that's a harder that's a harder sell sometimes in the American landscape to be able to say you're you're connected with other people and you have a responsibility. And well, yet, you got to get buy-in. It's hard. Yes, and yet Americans also have these traditions. I mean, this is, as you say, not just a a, a tension within uh, within religions, but even within our history. You know, you have De Tocqueville describes us as a nation of joiners, right? Mm-hmm. Americans famously are are joined clubs. We're not the Swiss, you know. We, you know, we. Although even the Swiss, actually, if you think about the Swiss, they have other ways of expressing their common, you know, uh, common identity. So. Um, so I think this this sort of rugged individualism in the United States and don't tread on me runs parallel with, you know, we're a nation of joiners. And I think this is, again, where messaging is so important, because there are parts of our ideology and our history that you can appeal to that equip us to cope with this. In a way, you could even think that these traditions, as we were discussing before we started, you know, these traditions, including Judaism, record not just in the Talmud, which records, you know, both the successful and the weak argument, which I think is an extraordinary feature of the Talmud. And incidentally, is one of the, as we were talking about, is tends to a a more scientific appreciation of the world, less doctrinaire, right? Okay, we think this is the truth, but here are the falsities that we're also keeping a mind, Mm -hmm. our eye on. But I also think that, um, that these, these, uh, these, uh, these uh, properties of subtlety of thought about, about the world are crucially important when you're dealing with a kind of complex threat like the virus. Actually, I lost my train of thought there for a moment, but I think I, I think I said what I wanted to say. Well, there was there was a question that uh, that that came up, which was um, that there are a lot of people who are not hearing or integrating evidence, which would motivate people to take it more seriously. And and I think there's two different pieces of that. Of one is. And we came to this at the beginning of of where do we find the evidence? And and sometimes it's a can I believe it versus must I believe it? Right, that, that where we where we look, the information that we get is very curated right now. Um, but there's also the question of evidence doesn't always motivate people, and that's correct. And that's I think that's that's some of that question of how do we how do we motivate people? And you talk a lot about this in, and I think in, in connected, which was, which was, uh, you know, one, one of your books that I, about 10 years ago, um, of people being able to, to mirror each other. They look at their, their leaders, they look at their peers. What are the ways in which social networks can be leveraged to be able to, to be taking this more seriously and, and acting more, more effectively and, and more healthfully? Well, first of all, you, there's that saying, you know, you can't reason a man or a person. You can't reason a person out of a position they haven't been reasoned into, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're forming your beliefs based on emotions, let's say, which I'm not critical of emotions. I think emotions are an extraordinary feature of our humanity, but they're not necessarily the And sometimes they can be a terrific guide to action, actually. Uh, you know, fear, for example, can be quite wise at times. Uh, but, you know, I think that, you know, when it comes to things like a pandemic, I think we need to use reason. And, you know, I think that we should be reasoned into and out of our positions. But you're also right that um, that um, uh, that that networks are incredibly important vehicles for the transmission of everything from feelings to germs to ideas. And I did an a experiment years ago with a man by the name of Sam Arbsman and another man by the name of David Rand. I know Sam. Yes, exactly. On uh, on network contagion of altruistic behavior, and you know, we showed that when you're kind to someone else, it doesn't. It's not just redound to you or redound to that other person, but that person learns to be kind and then treats still others with greater kindness. 
and so, and so anyway, so there's, so, so I think, uh, what's the take home from that? Again, a, a sort of, I'm sort of meandering. This is like a dinner table conversation, not like a lecture. So, uh, so I lose my train of thought pretty easily, but I think that, I think the point I would make about that is the recognition that if we are able as citizens, as, um, as leaders, if we, to the extent we have leadership roles, whether you're a rabbi or a, or a, or a person that leads some group of some kind, if we are able to cultivate in others desirable changes in behavior, thankfully those changes will ripple out and, uh, and have bigger benefits than just the direct effects. And that's one of the insights from Connected that you alluded to, the book Connected. And, you know, there was a there was a question that that came up, and it, and it links to something that that I've been grappling with because I've got a five year old, and and that question he'll his his line now is that Google knows everything except when the coronavirus is going to end, and and he'll ask when is the coronavirus is going going to end, and what I think he means to an extent is when is life going to be back to to yes. normal, and I think a lot of us are. are looking at this and, and, and at least in the Northern hemisphere and the Northeast, we're about to get into a, a deep winter that's going to be even harder because we're not going to be able to be outside. So, so having a sense of, of what's likely to happen is a helpful piece. And you talk about this a lot at, towards the end of Apollo's arrow of what, what's likely to happen sort of in the next six months, what the world is going to look like in the, you know, say the next 18 months and what's likely to happen in sort of 2024. Um, and we'd just love to hear a little yeah. bit about what you're seeing of the future of, of what yeah. is going to look like. So, so there's something there just to set the stage for that. Let me introduce another piece of sort of technical information about a virus. This is something earlier we talked about the lethality and another there, infectious diseases have a number of fundamental have a number of fundamental properties, uh, but one of them is the lethality, and there's several others, but one of those others is the infectivity of the pathogen. How infectious is it? This is known as the R naught, the R sub zero. So this is the basic reproduction number. When you have an infected case of the virus in a non-immune host that's interacting normally, how many additional cases do you get? And for this virus, it's about three. So for each each case of coronavirus in a non-immune host population of humans interacting normally, uh, each case causes uh, three new cases. Now, of course, if we were to change our behavior, which we do, for instance, by physical distancing from each other, that what we're doing is we're stopping that, and that's we're not, but we're not modifying the intrinsic infectiousness of the pathogen. This are not is a property of the pathogen. Now, if you take that number and you use a certain mathematical formula. Actually, before I talk about that, let me then do a digression and a digression. I'm not going to lose a train of thought this time. Uh, is uh, There's something known as herd immunity. And herd immunity is the idea that a population can be immune to an, a pathogen or not prone to epidemics, even though not every individual within it is immune. For example, let's consider measles. Let's say you vaccinate 96% of the population for measles. If one of the 4% of non-immune people gets the measles, you don't get an outbreak because they can't give it to anyone else. They're surrounded by people who, who are immune, okay? And that percentage, that 96 percentage, is the so-called herd immunity threshold. Now, measles is the most infectious disease known, and, uh, and you should have the intuition that the threshold of people that need to be immune varies according to how infectious the disease is. And the calculation for that uses the r naught. You go r naught, the R sub zero, minus one, divided by R naught is the herd immunity threshold. 
And for coronavirus, three minus one is two divided by three is two thirds. The herd immunity threshold is 66, let's say 67%. Now it turns out that's a simplification that has, I won't go into the details, but it has to do, it makes something known as the well-mixed assumption. When you take some network science into effect, it turns out that the proportion that actually needs to be immune is lower than that. Let's say 45%, maybe 50%. So let's say for the sake of argument, that if 50% of Americans were to become exposed to this virus and acquire immunity naturally, we would have reached the herd immunity threshold and the virus's epidemic potential will have now stopped. It doesn't mean the virus has disappeared. The virus is still among us, can still kill us, but its epidemic force has been stopped. Well, right now, so that's our target. Right now, about 13% of Americans are probably have been exposed naturally. The number is rising rapidly, probably by half a percent or a percent every, every two weeks. That number is going up right now, given that we're in the second wave and given how poorly our nation is behaving. But that means we're about a quarter of the way to herd immunity. Okay. Now, if we, if we just let the virus keep going, it'll probably take another year or so to reach the herd immunity threshold naturally. All right. Alternatively, we have now invented a vaccine, and the vaccine, thank goodness, we've invented, but now must be manufactured. We need tens or hundreds of millions of doses, distributed, which is not easy for various reasons, and then we have to persuade the public to accept it, at least 50%. So my thinking is, and that'll all take time, okay? We're going to get to the end of 2021. So I think it's going to be 2022, the beginning of 2022, before we have the epidemiological and biological force of the pandemic in the rearview mirror behind us. Either because we've reached herd immunity artificially because of vaccination, or we've reached herd immunity naturally, because while we're doing all this stuff for the vaccine, the virus is still spreading, right? And infecting people. So either way, 2022 demarcates a milestone for this pandemic, okay? So that is the immediate period from the time the virus came to us back in t- late 2019 to early 22, 2022 is the immediate pandemic period. Then I think we're going to enter what I call the intermediate period because the country is not going to suddenly return to normal. We have 30 million Americans out of work. Countless businesses have been shuttered. We've had great movements of people. Like in, like in times of all plagues, people have fled cities and moved to rural areas. Some of them will relocate going back. We've got the psychological damage to our children whose schools have been closed and the social changes. So all of that's going to take time if you look at historical epidemics. So I think that gets us to the end of 2023, let's say the beginning of 2024, before we begin to have redressed a lot of the social, psychological and economic impacts, and also incidentally clinical, because one thing we need to also realize is that we don't know this for sure, but probably about five times as many people will be disabled by this condition as are killed by it. So if we have half a million Americans dead, that means two and a half million with some kind of non-trivial disability. Uh, And that's a huge amount of disability in our society. And that is going to take our attention too, after we get the acute shock behind us. But then in 2024, we're going to enter what I think is the post-pandemic period, which I think in some ways could be like the roaring 20s again after the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic. And and I'm almost done. Uh, Usually what happens in times of plague is people get more religious. I mean, this has been observed for thousands of years. Uh, They get more abstemious. They stop spending money. Uh, They get risk averse. 
they adopt a whole set of behaviors like that. And then when the plague is behind them, they do the reverse. Religion now declines again. People spend liberally. You might get sexual licentiousness. People relentlessly seek out uh, opportunities for social interaction. They've been, you know, they've been stuck at home fearing a deadly pathogen for years. Now all of a sudden, they go to bars and nightclubs and political rallies and uh, and musical events and churches and synagogues again. And all of that stuff, you know, returns. And so, and then there often there's an efflorescence of the arts and so on. So I think. I think that is what we're going to experience as a, as a society after we, you know, as we enter the post-pandemic period. Now, one last thing, there will be persistent changes in our society even then, okay? And so your five-year-old, you know, uh, there will be changes that that young person will experience in the world they grow up in as partly as a result of this uh, pandemic. And I think what's what's interesting and what's helpful with with your book too is that you look at the history of plagues because we are so focused, particularly now with with social media and the advances of, of technology of of 2020 is the worst year and oh my god this is going to happen when is this going to happen right now but but plagues it's it's an 18 month two year five year period we talk about the 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 Black Death over when we talk about it over several years or the 19. 1918-1919 influenza pandemic that it's that it's not just you know the the march of 2020 it's yes. going to be a, a longer period and it's hard for us to realize that right now because the virus is the virus and that's going to impact us here and and some of it's going to be very slow shifts yes no that's exactly right and i also think that you know for example no expert that I know was remotely surprised that we're having a second wave. Uh, right. I mean, every respiratory pandemic comes in waves. Uh, we're going to have a third wave too in a year, by the way. It, if the vaccines have been rolled out substantially, the, the amplitude of the wave will be reduced significantly. But this coming summer, we'll have a decent summer. And then they'll come winter, cases will go up again, right? And, and this will be the reverberating echo of the pandemic. We are extraordinarily lucky that if you think about human beings since time immemorial. Like so many listeners right now are probably hearing this and thinking, this is incredibly annoying this way we have to live. And uh, you know, it's so alien and unnatural that we're in our homes and we can't go, we can't go out, we can't go to, 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 to worship and we can't go shopping and we can't travel. And this is outrageous and so alien. But the thing is, plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. We think that they this is so weird, but it's not. Plagues, they're in the Bible, they're in uh, they're in Homer, you know, the begin the Iliad as I, Apollo's arrow opens with a plague. So this is an old and familiar uh, enemy that uh, that that we are facing. And so I think it's very important for people to to understand that, you know, and that in a way, we are so lucky because our time in the crucible happens to be at a time, when human beings in real time can invent a vaccine. This has never before happened. It's unbelievable, just unbelievable that we have vaccines 10 months into the epidemic. And, um, and usually these vaccines typically in the past, only in the last 100 years or so, or 50 years, have, you, have we even been able to do such things, um, typically have arrived long after the, you know, the, the threat of the pathogen is behind us. So, you know, we are lucky we have this tool at our disposal. And and that's, I mean, that's, you know, you talk about this with, with plagues coming up in, in the Bible, it comes up in the Talmud that, that um, you know, for many of us, when we've 
studied texts or things like that. It's oh, it's a metaphor. It's because the, because we haven't actually had to deal with. It's a metaphor. It's, it's old wisdom that is being given to you, you know, right now. Right, right, right. And 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 I think I, what's what's been what's been different is the the role that religion you and wish, theology. You wish it was a metaphor, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, this is a metaphor. You know, that right. didn't really mean you know that we would actually die. Right. No, no, you're actually going to die. You know, it's bad. <laughs> and and I think that's because because for so many centuries, the question of God and, and questions of power, we didn't have the level of agency that we have as yes. as human beings, that you had to make sense. It's a lot of like Yuval Harari and, and Steven Pinker's work also. You know, we, we had just, what does this all mean with a capital M? Because we didn't have the ability to shift and change. And it's, and, 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 we, you know, we've had to deal with plagues since agriculture has, has started. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and, and now all of a sudden we've got these technologies and can be talking with, you know, within the, in the Black Death, people didn't know what was happening in Egypt or in, in, in Persia or in the yeah. Americas or anything like that. And so, and now we can see what's happening in Italy and all over the world. And that's a, that's a different world that we're living in here. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, you're right that we can have contemporaneous appreciation for what's happening elsewhere around the world. And that is also different. Although even in 1890 in the so-called Russian flu, which I actually think was probably another coronavirus pandemic, I think people wrongly think it was influenza. Uh, uh, people, you know, there was news that spread. I mean, people were aware of, of what was happening. But I think that these oral traditions and, and these written traditions actually were intended to transmit warnings and information about how to act and what, how to think about, you know, plagues, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I tell the story in the book. It's one of my favorite stories about, about these, uh, these tsunami stones in Japan. Yeah. So, I love uh, that piece. yeah. So the, uh, so, you know, these, uh, there was a tsunami in 1600 or so approximately in, in Japan and the waves, the, the tsunami was so big that the waves came 10 miles inland. And they, of course they wiped everything out like everything completely out. And the, the Japanese villagers that lived at the edge of the wave put up stone markers and they said, do not build villages below this line. And when there was another tsunami 400 years later in Japan, the, uh, during the Fukushima disaster, the villages that were spared were the villages that were built just above the stone. You know, this is a way of transmitting, uh, or even better story related to tsunamis is the Andaman Islanders who had an oral tradition. This is a digression on a digression, but I'll tell you the story because it's so interesting to me. Uh, when the, the, the same tsunami struck uh, in Phuket in Thailand, there were many people on the beach and there was a little Australian girl who uh, all of a sudden the tide started going out very rapidly at the wrong moment. There were all these people on the beach and the water just disappeared. Uh, and you could walk out into the beach and you could explore the sea bottom and you could see the fish and the crabs and the, and the seaweed. And it was very interesting. And people were like wandering in to look at all this stuff. And a little 10 year old girl in Australia had had a lesson which she had learned that uh, in her classroom that uh, when this happened, it meant that a, a tsunami was coming because this, of course, was the trough in front of the wave, right? The water was drawing back and then the huge you know, wave was coming. And I talked to my wife when I read this story because 
I know a, a good amount of physics. If I had been on that beach, I would have recognized that this was a very unusual event, that the water was drawing back. But I don't know that I would have uh, realized it was a tsunami, which was outside of my experience mm-hmm. as a person. I don't know I would have put two and two together. But if I had heard the little girl, I would have instantly, oh, my God, I know it. that is really bad. We need to get inland immediately, right? Like, I, I would have been able, if triggered by that little thing, I would have known what to do. So the Andaman Islanders in the same Indian Ocean had an oral tradition, which they passed down, which was that if you see the sea suddenly recede, and you've never seen anything like this before, go to this temple made of stone inland on a hilltop, by coincidence, go to this temple and pray. That was their oral tradition. And all of them survived. They're like Stone Age people. They all survived the tsunami. Whereas in India, on the Indian coast, with modern technology, with buoys Mm -hmm. offshore, with all of this stuff, thousands of people lost their lives. So there is a sense in which our transmission of information, whether it's across space, like in in a given moment, or across time, when it comes to oral traditions or written traditions, is a way of warning our descendants about about the dangers posed by this age-old threat. And and being able to know, I mean, I'm thinking about texts that, that we've been reading, um, questions of, of liturgy and you know on, on on the high holy days of of talking about um, there's a there's a martyrology and there's a, a whole piece of of who shall live and who shall die. And a lot of a lot of Jewish liturgy has written a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, and, and texts get interpreted and, and get built on. And, and, and you're trying to do like almost like a palimpsest of trying to see like what's, what's underneath this here because society has changed, but human nature hasn't yes. over, you know, over that long. Um, I could, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in your camp on that human nature has not changed for thousands of years. Actually, just to pick up a little thread of what you said, you mentioned offhandedly and listeners may not appreciate this, it's very likely that plagues are came to us because of the agricultural revolution. That actually the way our ancestors lived in the prior to the Pleistocene um, did not involve these types. Our groups were too small. We we did not have the kind of contact with certainly not. They weren't domesticated animals. Most of the human pathogens like measles and tuberculosis and uh, diphtheria and all of these pathogens actually originally came to us from animals we domesticated. And the pathogens that afflict us are the descendants, the the domesticated descendants of the pathogens that afflicted the non-domesticated animal ancestors um, that Mm -hmm. we domesticated. And then we also needed large aggregations. There's an idea that I talk about in the book, which is a subtle and interesting idea, uh, which has to do with so-called minimum community size. For a pathogen to move from an animal to us and then circulate among us, there have to be enough of us in the group. Otherwise, it runs out of runway. It has to be able to move in a circle through the population. So when you get, you know, beginning with the great empires of the past, you get domesticated animals living in close proximity to large aggregations of people, that's when you begin to get uh, plagues. Prior to that, probably they didn't exist, these types of and, large-scale things. And that's, you know, that and that leads to, you know, there are a couple of people who, who brought this up here of, and, and you mentioned this also, which is so much of what what makes us human and the connectedness and the and the socialness of 
things that are very deep in human nature of ritual and song and handshakes and hugs and 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 yes. ritual um, are are so integrated of who we are, and yet also are the vectors of this yes. invisible virus. And it's and it's a it's a what's been so hard is how are we changing human nature to to combat what we want to be able to do, which is to save human lives. And and it's and it's very challenging to be able to to yeah because um, make this trade off. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the deep ironies here is that this pathogen is exploiting our deepest humanity. I mean, we have all these wonderful qualities. We, unlike other animals, we, well, we're social. Many animals are social. We live in aggregations, but we also have make social networks. We have, we have friendships. Other animals do not have friendships. You know, they don't form long-term non-reproductive unions with other members of their species. We are cooperative animals. We make sacrifices for people who are not genetically related to us. This is also very rare in the animal kingdom. We do all of these. We love our mates. You know, we form sentimental attachments to the people we're having sex with, which is again, uncommon uh, in the animal kingdom. So uh, although birds have monogamy, this, uh, this is all in my book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, which is another whole topic. But anyway, the point is we have evolved to have a particular kind of sociality and, 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 and to teach each other things, you know, like we transmit information like we were discussing earlier. And you could make the argument that in a very real way, the spread of germs is the price we pay for the spread of ideas. Mm -hmm. That the virus exploits our social nature and our interest in working together and in transmitting information and in coming near each other in order to transmit knowledge and share knowledge, it exploits those propensities and to hug and touch each other and all this stuff, it exploits those tendencies to spread. But equally, paradoxically, it's the case that we are, those are the tools we're going to use to fight the virus, right? Mm -hmm. It is the spread of ideas that will result in us being able to repel the spread of the virus. It's the, it's the working together ironically, to live apart. And all of those things that we're doing that will ultimately be the things we need to do to, to fight this, you know, this biological enemy that we're facing. And Nicholas, we're thrilled to have you as the launch of this project. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sacred Science. And we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Professor Nicholas Christakis. You can find him on Twitter at N.A. Christakis. And if you want to learn more about the ideas from this conversation, then pick up his latest book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Our guest on our next episode will be Dr. Jeremy Englund, an ordained Orthodox rabbi and physicist and author of the book, Every Life is on Fire, How Thermodynamics Explains the Origins of Living Things. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses and is part of the network of shows hosted at Jewish Live. And you can join us every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern at jewishlive.org slash sacredscience to be part of the conversation. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at sinaiandsynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, you can follow us on Twitter at Sinai Synapses or me at Rabbi Mittelman. Thank you for joining us and Kol Tuv, all good things. Mm-hmm.